Today we talk about orbits, what they are, and how they come to be. We will also discuss how objects move in space, and how we can describe their motion. Last episode, we talked about where space is. With this definition, we could go up anywhere greater than 100 kilometers and reach space. And this is what we call a suborbital spaceflight. We go up, and we come right back down due to the Earth's gravity. This can be useful in certain situations, but often we want to stay in space for a longer time. We want to do longer experiments in space. Maybe we want to take images of the Earth, or leave navigation satellites up there. Now there's a misconception that there's no gravity in space. Let's look real briefly at how gravity works. Gravity is an attracting force, which brings all masses together. It can even pull on forms of energy. Now the most accurate description of gravity is from the theory of general relativity which describes gravity as a curvature of space-time. But for our purposes today, we're going to stick with the classical Newtonian law. And this will be good enough for us, because we won't be dealing with the extreme cases that require quantum physics. Hopefully this episode will be interesting enough without getting into general relativity. So Newton's law of universal gravitation states that the gravitational force between two objects is proportional to the mass of the objects, divided by the distance between their centers squared. What does all that mean? Well, first of all, larger objects have more gravitational attraction. Also, if you double your distance from an object's center, the force is reduced to one quarter of the original force. Because remember, we have that distance squared term at the bottom. One cool fact is that both bodies exert the same force on the other body. When you drop a ball, the earth pulls it down, and the ball pulls on the earth just as much. Now, obviously, the masses of these two objects are very different, and we know that force is equal to mass times acceleration. So even though the forces are the same, because of the mass, the accelerations are very, very different. So if you have the same force on a huge mass like the Earth, it's a very tiny acceleration. But it is still non-zero. Now let's look back to spaceflight. Let's talk about the International Space Station, which is at approximately 400 kilometers altitude. Now there's a little less gravity on the International Space Station, but it's nowhere near zero. If we compare the International Space Station at 400 kilometers altitude to one resting on the surface of the Earth, we know that the masses will be constant, and so will the gravitational constant. Otherwise, it wouldn't be much of a constant. So all we need to do to find the new gravity at this altitude is to find the ratio of the distances squared. If we're standing on the surface of the Earth, 
we're not at zero distance from the Earth. Because remember, for this idealization, we're measuring from the center of the Earth. We're actually about 6,371 kilometers from the center. The exact number depends on some physics and some definitions that we won't get into today. But 6,371 squared, which is again Earth's radius, divided by 6,371 plus 408 all squared, that's the distance from the center that the ISS is at, gives us about 0.883, or about 88% of the gravity that is felt on the surface of the Earth. So astronauts at the distance of the ISS would experience 88% of the gravity we experience. Now, clearly that's not enough difference to account for the astronauts floating around. In fact, in order to actually feel zero gravitational force from a body, you have to be infinitely far away. Which means that every mass in the universe pulls on every other mass. So why are the astronauts floating? Well, to answer this question, we need to discuss orbits. Simply put, if you travel fast enough in a tangential direction to a body, you can move so fast that you fall towards the object and miss it. Based on the velocity of an object, it can travel in a number of curves around another object. And these curves are determined by the gravitational force. We can have no orbit. We can have suborbital curves, like we talked about. And we can have a variety of different orbits, like circles, ellipses. We can even get escape trajectories, which we'll talk about later on in the episode. And these can be parabolic or hyperbolic, depending on the velocity of our object. Since we have very little air in space, depending on the altitude we're at, there's no drag, and the orbits persist in their orbit. So if something has a certain trajectory in space, there's no drag force to change that trajectory. Now, in reality, there is a tiny amount, and we also have deformation and tidal forces but we'll discuss how those change these orbits in a future episode. For today, we deal with ideal orbits. Now, you might not still be fully convinced about how an orbit works or what exactly is going on, so I'm going to describe a very commonly used model here. Imagine for a moment a cannon on a large mountain on the Earth, and imagine there's no air resistance, like we have up in space. Now the cannon is parallel to the ground, pointing straight in front of you. So we fire the cannon, and we watch the ball curve down and hit the Earth, due to the Earth's gravity. Now imagine we put in more gunpowder. We want to give the cannon more initial velocity. So it will shoot out of the cannon, curve down, and hit the Earth. But this time further away, because we gave it a faster start. In fact, if you can keep adding gunpowder, you can keep making the cannonball land further and further away. And you can do this all around the Earth. Eventually, at a certain starting speed, the ball will go all the way around the Earth and hit you. 
Now let's imagine that you're wise enough to move out of the way, and you also move the cannon. The ball will continue orbiting the Earth at this height. It's not losing any speed because, remember, there's no air drag. So when it flies by the starting position, it's basically repeating what happened the first time, and so on forever. Note that the mass of the cannonball doesn't matter here. We just care about its initial velocity. It will take more force to accelerate a larger mass, but as long as it's traveling at the required speed for its height, it will be in orbit. So that's what's happening whenever we talk about orbits. What are some orbits that we know of? Well, the Earth orbits around the Sun. One orbit is one year. The Moon orbits around the Earth. We have satellites that we put into orbit, that orbit around the Earth and orbit around other planets. Now, if you were listening carefully before, to be technically correct in our previous description, the cannonball would also exert a gravitational force on the Earth. But we're going to ignore this for today, simply because the Earth is so much more massive than whatever we can shoot. Technically, the objects will both rotate around the overall center of mass of the system. And this center of mass is also called the barycenter. Think of the Earth and the Moon, for example. The Moon orbits the Earth, but the Moon is big enough to also pull the Earth somewhat. And this means that the actual point that both bodies are rotating around is not in the very center of the Earth. It's a few thousand kilometers from the center. It's still within the Earth, so to an outside observer, it would look like the Moon is orbiting the Earth, and the Earth is wobbling. If, for example, the Earth and the Moon had the exact same mass, they would both orbit a barycenter that was exactly halfway in between them. So for the stuff we'll be talking about today, like a satellite or a cannonball, this has such a low mass in comparison to the Earth that the barycenter is still effectively in the center of the Earth, and we don't see any effect of that satellite pulling on the Earth. Orbits are very critical for traveling in space. Moving through space is not like driving on a road, where you can just stop and change directions at will. I'm going to talk about orbital maneuvers more in a future episode. It will be all about how you can change your orbit to get where you want to go. But for now, first we need to talk about how orbits behave. Now to answer this question of how orbits look, we have Kepler's laws of planetary motion. These are scientific laws developed by the German Johannes Kepler, published in the early 1600s. To give you a feel for the time period, his father was a mercenary and his mother was a healer slash herbalist. At one point in his life, he had to defend his mother from accusations of witchcraft. Kepler was a brilliant man, and the three laws of planetary motion he developed are 1. A closed orbit is an ellipse with the central body at one of the focal points. 2. A line segment joining a planet and the central body sweeps out equal areas in equal time. 
and finally 3, the square of the orbital period of a planet is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis. Now don't worry if that was a bit fast. We'll look into what each of these three laws mean. The first one is relatively self-explanatory. It tells us what shape to expect. We can get an ellipse, which is like a stretched-out circle. An ellipse has a precise mathematical definition, and it involves two focus points. Closed orbits can still be circles, because these are actually a special case of ellipse, where the focal points are at the same point, which gives us a center point. So, long story short, we won't see a square-shaped orbit. Next, we're going to skip over to Law 3 for a moment. We can use this to figure out how long it takes to orbit once, given the semi-major axis of the orbit. The semi-major axis is like the diameter of an ellipse. So objects in a higher orbit move slower, and take longer to complete one rotation around the central body, than those in a lower orbit. We can see this. A year on Earth lasts longer than a year on Venus, or a year on any other planet closer to the Sun. We can use this law to calculate the orbital period from the distance, or we can go the other way and get the distance from the orbital period. Finally, the second law tells us about the speed of the orbit depending on its shape. A circular orbit will always go the same speed, because each slice is swept out in the same time. Recall that an elliptical orbit has the planet at one of its focal points. Ellipses have two focal points, and unlike the circle, they're not in the center of the shape. This means that at some points in the orbit, the orbiting body is closer to the planet, and at some points it's further away. So how do we satisfy this second law that said something about sweeping out the same area in the same time? Well, when the satellite is closer to the body it's orbiting, the slices will be shorter, and so the satellite must be moving faster to sweep out the same area in a given time. But when it's further away, the satellite moves slower, because the slices are longer. Hopefully you can get an idea of how this would look for an orbit. But the important part is that in an orbit, when you're closer to the central body, you're moving faster, and when you go further away, you move slower. But why should the orbits follow this arbitrary law? Nature doesn't care about the area that's swept out. It turns out that this arises from energy, and the universe does care about conservation of energy. In an orbit, the satellite always transforms the energy between kinetic energy and gravitational potential energy. Remember that energy isn't destroyed. When the satellite is far away from the orbiting body, it has a lot of potential energy. And so the kinetic energy, and from that the velocity, is lower. 
as the body moves closer to the planet, some of that potential energy is converted to kinetic energy, and the satellite starts moving faster. And this is exactly what we mentioned before. And it also leads us to two special points on the orbit. These are the periapsis and the apoapsis. The periapsis is the point on the orbit where the orbiting body is closest to the central body. And the apoapsis is when it's the furthest. So consequently, from what we just learned, at the periapsis, the object will be moving the fastest, while at the apoapsis, it will always be moving the slowest. Because remember, it's further and has more potential energy and less kinetic energy. And based on the shape of the orbit, these points will always be on opposite sides of the orbit. Now, apsis is the general suffix for these points, but we can change that depending on what body the satellite is orbiting. For stuff orbiting the Earth, for example, we use perigee and apogee. If we're orbiting the Sun, we can say perihelion and apohelion. There are some pretty cool suffixes for other planets and objects as well. My favorite is the perigalacticon, the closest point on an orbit around a galaxy. To me, it sounds like a mix between sci-fi aliens and a really crazy flavor of ice cream. If anyone makes that ice cream, I don't need any royalties, just give me a free taste. So how do astronomers specify an orbit? Think about it, it would be very useful to have a method of describing what an orbit looks like and how it's oriented in space. Well, we have the tools to do just this. These are called the Keplerian elements, and there are six of them. Two of them tell us about the shape of the orbit, and these are the semi-major axis and the eccentricity. Three of them tell us about the orientation of the orbit, and these are inclination, right ascension of the ascending node, and argument of perigee. And finally, one tells us about the point along the orbit, and we use perigee passing time for that. So before we implement all these Keplerian elements, we need a reference frame. Broadly speaking, we need something we can measure relative to. There are a number of reference frames that we can use and we can choose from, but the problem with anything that uses fixed points on the Earth is that the Earth rotates. On the Earth, if, if you were to say, hey, I'm 5 kilometers north of point A, that position remains fixed. For our purposes, it will be the same tomorrow and in a year. If you want to specify where a distant star is, however, it might not be the best choice to give its position relative to point A. And that's because point A is rotating with the Earth, while the star is not. It might be directly overhead right now, but it won't necessarily be later. So what we're really trying to do is make a so-called celestial reference frame that's fixed with the stars. Now, I am aware that stars do move relative to each other, 
but so many of the stars are so far away that this motion is incredibly small to us. So what if we could take a globe of the Earth and project it out onto the rest of the universe? We can take the Earth's north and south pole and extend them. The Earth rotates around this axis, so this axis is fixed with respect to the other stars. Now I am lying to you a little bit. The Earth's axis actually wobbles somewhat, but like with many other things, we won't worry about that today. Similar to the axis, we can extend the plane that runs through the Earth's equator. And now we have a start of a globe for the universe. Imagine a light inside the Earth that could project all the meridians and the parallels out onto the rest of the universe, onto all the stars we see around us. We would call these latitude circles declination. And just like latitude, declination is zero at the celestial equator, up to 90 degrees at the North Pole, and similarly, all the way to negative 90 at the South Pole. But how would we determine longitude? For this, we would need a starting point. On the Earth, we choose a pretty arbitrary prime meridian, and we call that zero. Now, in reality, it wasn't that simple an affair. There was actually a lot of debate, since naturally a lot of people wanted it to be running through their country and such. But anyway, why can't we just extend the Greenwich Prime Meridian? like we did with the North Pole. Well, it's back to the same issue again. That meridian will be rotating with the Earth, so it won't help us position the stars so much. We need a point on the celestial equator that we can call zero. And we use something called the vernal equinox. The vernal equinox is the direction from the Earth to the Sun on March 21st. This sounds very arbitrary, but it's chosen because it's one of the points where the path of the sun crosses our celestial equator. So we're going to use that as a reference direction that doesn't rotate with the Earth. Even though the Earth rotates, that direction will always stay fixed. At this point, you might have forgotten why we're even talking about coordinate systems. Remember we had those Keplerian elements, and we wanted to be able to describe how they sit in space. Now all stable orbits can be drawn on a plane. Go ahead and actually do this. I promise it will help you. If people give you funny looks, just tell them you're learning orbital mechanics. Maybe you can even make a new friend out of it. Who knows? So draw your ellipse on a piece of paper, and then orient the paper however you like. The paper does have to stay flat. So two of our Keplerian elements are going to be shown on the ellipse on the paper. The semi-major axis and the eccentricity will change the shape of how the ellipse looks. To orient that plane, that piece of paper in space, we're going to need a reference frame. And the reason we're doing this is because even though an orbit has the same shape, 
if it's positioned differently in space, it will act very differently. And we want to be able to differentiate these different types of orbits. So first of all, to inclination. Inclination is the angle between the orbital plane and the celestial equatorial plane we defined. Zero means the satellite is orbiting over the equator, in the same direction as the world is turning. A 90-degree inclination means that the orbit is going over the poles. Angles greater than 90 are actually also possible, and these refer to orbits going against the direction of the rotation of the Earth. Now remember that equatorial plane we talked about a minute ago? The next Keplerian element is the right ascension of the ascending node. That's a bit of a mouthful. Basically, there are two points where our orbit intersects the equatorial plane. If the orbit happens to be at zero inclination, then technically each point of the orbit passes over the equator. And there we're a little more free to pick a certain point. But if the orbit does have some inclination, it will pass above and below the equatorial plane. At one of the points, it will cross from below to above, and on the opposite side it will cross back from above to below. Now, as you might have guessed from the name, the point we choose for our right ascension of the ascending node is the ascending node, the point where we're crossing the equator from below going above, or in the northward direction. And we measure the right ascension of the ascending node from our vernal equinox, because remember, that was a fixed direction, and it won't rotate with the Earth. The right ascension of the ascending node is constant, and we can use that to describe the orientation of our orbital plane. At this point, let's briefly recap what we've described so far. The semi-major axis and the eccentricity show us what the orbit looks like, how big the ellipse is, and what its shape is. Zero eccentricity is a perfect circle and the circle then becomes more and more squished, more elliptical, as we raise our eccentricity. Now to position the ellipse in space, we need some angles, to ensure that it's rotated the right way. Inclination shows us how steep it is with respect to the equatorial plane. Hold your paper at 30 degrees to the floor. That's inclination. Right ascension of the ascending node gives us the rotation of the orbital plane around the orbital axis of the Earth. This is to differentiate between a 30-degree inclined orbit that's sloping up to our right versus one that's sloping up away from us, or sloping up to our left. It's how the paper is rotated if you're looking at it from above. So at this point, we have the shape of our orbit and it's on the right plane in space. So are we done? Well, I did mention we needed six elements. So what else do we still need? We need to orient the ellipse on the plane that it's confined to. Hold your paper in whatever orientation you've defined so far. Now imagine, or you can actually do this, 
sticking a pin perpendicular to your paper. Now the orbit can also be oriented at any angle around this pin. It's the same as if you had drawn the orbit, the same orbit, but in a different orientation on your paper. An orbit with the periapsis pointing to the vernal equinox is different than an orbit where the orbit is rotated and the periapsis is 45 degrees away. And this rotation is specified by our next Keplerian element, the argument of perigee. It's the angle in the orbital plane from the ascending node to the periapsis. Okay, we're almost there. Just one final Keplerian element. The perigee passing time, or more general, the periapsis passing time, is an epoch, a time when the satellite passes the periapsis. So knowing that the satellite was at the periapsis on January 1st, 2000, for example, allows us to calculate where it was and where it will be at any date. Now this is extremely useful because it lets us mathematically fast forward or rewind as much as we want to, to find where the satellite was or will be at any time. And this way, we can even describe two different satellites on the very same orbit, but on different places in the orbit. Now I'll talk more about types of orbits in a future episode, but using this to phase satellites is extremely useful, especially when we come to designing satellite constellations. So overall, these Keplerian elements and our celestial reference frame are very useful. Using them, we can figure out what parts of the Earth a satellite will pass, whether we use that to take pictures, for communications, or for something else. And we can also use them and apply them to other bodies in space. This allows us to see the paths of the bodies in our solar systems, to track eclipses, or plan maneuvers for our spacecraft. So far, I've been talking about orbits as ellipses, but it's actually a bit more general than that. If you know a bit of math, you might have recognized that circles and ellipses are both conic sections. And in fact, all the possible shapes of an orbit are conic sections. Now these are exactly what they sound like. The intersection of the surface of a cone with a plane. If you have an ice cream cone and you take a slice, depending on the angle at which you take your slice, you could get a circle, an ellipse, a parabola, and other things as well. What kind of orbit you have depends on the total amount of energy the satellite has. And keep in mind, the total energy is made up of both kinetic and gravitational potential energy. Gravitational potential energy is defined as being negative. And this is because you have to do work to move an object away from a gravitational field. On the other hand, kinetic energy is defined as being positive. And this depends on our speed and our mass. 
So in what we might call a regular orbit, that is to say, a bound orbit, we have an overall negative energy. It's a stable orbit, and we don't have enough kinetic energy to escape the gravity of the inner body. We would need to increase our kinetic energy to be able to escape. A gravitational pull is often thought of as a well. The more mass of a body, the deeper a well it creates, and hence we need more work or more kinetic energy to get out of the well and escape that gravitational pull. If your satellite has the same amount of kinetic energy as potential energy, it is at the escape velocity. So what does that put our overall energy at, if gravitational and kinetic energy are equal? Overall, it would be zero, because remember, one's positive and one's negative. And in this case, our orbit will have a parabolic shape. It will be shaped like a parabola. Our satellite will travel further and further away, while asymptotically slowing down. And basically, once it reaches the infinite distance, where it's free from the gravitational field, it will have exactly zero velocity left. It's kind of weird to imagine this, but that's our definition. If our kinetic energy is more than this threshold, the orbit is hyperbolic, which it's again mathematically defined, but you can visualize it as more or less a wider parabola. And since we have positive energy in this case, we have enough energy to free ourselves from the inner body and still have some velocity left over. At this point, it's getting a little bit theoretical. So let's take a break and look at some numbers of actual escape velocities from the surface of a few different bodies. First from the Earth. Assuming there's no atmospheric drag, we would have to go 11.2 kilometers a second to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth. From the Moon, you would only need 2.4 kilometers per second. And this is purely because the Moon is less massive. It has less gravitational pull. If you could sit on the surface of the Sun and avoid the obvious problems, the escape velocity would be 617.5 kilometers per second. And that's also, again, because there's so much more gravitational potential that needs to be overcome. Now, in reality, our universe is more complicated than that. We have bodies that orbit other bodies. So, say we somehow went 11.2 kilometers per second, and we escaped the gravitational pull of the Earth. Would we just travel infinitely far away? No, we're still bound by the sun. And keep in mind, these velocities have been from the surface of the body. If we're in a higher orbit to start, we need less extra velocity to escape the body. So once we escape Earth, we don't need another 617.5 kilometers a second. The Earth is already pretty far from the sun. In fact, we only need 
42.1 kilometers per second to escape the sun at this distance. And we also have a speed boost from the Earth rotating around the sun. If we're speeding up along with the direction of this rotation, we get an extra speed boost. Since we're on Earth, which is moving quickly with respect to the sun, an average of around 29.8 kilometers a second, the net result is that we only really need 16.6 kilometers per second to escape the sun from the Earth. And this isn't just a simple addition of the speed. We have to consider the energy balances at each point in this journey. So things become somewhat more complicated when we've embedded some systems in other systems. And we'll get to talk about interplanetary missions in the future, and we'll go more in depth about how we can do these calculations. The last main point we'll talk about today is an equation called the V-Viva equation. V-Viva is Latin for living force. And it was a historical term for what we now call kinetic energy. And this was done back before people had a firm grasp on the relationship between force, momentum, and energy. The V-Viva equation looks like this. You have velocity squared is equal to the gravitational constant times mass. And then in brackets, this is all multiplied by 2 divided by the radius minus 1 divided by the semi-major axis. I know that's a little hard to uh, follow in audio form, but the equation is pretty much an energy balance. It's actually quite easy to rearrange the equation in terms of kinetic and potential energy. And on the other side, we would have a constant term, depending on the semi-major axis. And this kind of comes back to what we talked about before. The orbital energy, made up of kinetic and potential energy, is constant. So orbits with different amounts of total energy have different semi-major axes, which means a different orbit shape. And this formula, at its core, is just relating energy and the shape of the orbit. But it's a very useful formula because it can tell us the velocity for any point on a Keplerian orbit. All we need to know are the semi-major axis and the point where we want to calculate the velocity. In fact, we can use this equation to find out how much we're going to need to change our velocity to get to a certain orbit. We compute our current velocity, and then whatever the velocity is at the orbit that we want to reach, and then if we simply take a difference between these, we know how much velocity we're left to supply. How much our spacecraft needs to speed up or slow down to reach a target orbit. Sometimes we'll need a number of steps, what we call burns, to get to a desired orbit. And for missions with multiple burns, we can solve a sequence of these equations to find the overall change in velocity. So this equation will continue to be a very useful tool for us as we go further into mission planning and spacecraft design in the future. So in summary, 
All movement through space is based on simple concepts. But that doesn't mean it's always simple for us to understand and visualize. We've evolved and learned how to understand how things move and react here on Earth. So we need to flex our imaginations a little bit to adapt this understanding to this new environment. But if we put the work in and we try to understand orbits, it will greatly deepen our understanding of the different challenges and opportunities that await us in space. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to be notified when a new episode is released, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, go ahead and recommend it to them. Together we can teach more people about space. And the best part is, you get a friend who you can learn alongside. If you have any feedback, comments, or ideas, I would be thrilled to hear them. You can contact the show at theastronauticslab at gmail.com. Until next time, and stay curious, my friend.